chapter 19 of our study through the confession. And this morning, um, we're in this section of covenantal blessings, as you can see here uh, from the slide, beginning in chapter 10 with effectual call. Uh, This section of the confession deals with the many blessings that are poured out on us in the new covenant based upon the work of Christ. And so we've looked at assurance of salvation two weeks ago, perseverance of the saints a few weeks ago, good works. This morning we come to this question or this issue, this chapter of the law of God. And as we begin, and we're going to cover this this week and next week, uh, but as we begin this morning, I, I kind of want to pose a few questions to you. I want, I want to kind of introduce this chapter by highlighting in your mind its importance. So a few opening questions I might have for you, and I'd love it if you would respond to kind of pull the congregation here. But why is it important to define and know what the law of God is? Jason. So we can understand its purpose for our lives today. So the law of God, understanding its purpose and its role in our lives. I mean, wouldn't you agree, Cason, that this is true in redemption or conversion and sanctification? Like if you're not a Christian and you think, okay, the law of God is a means by which I can obey and be saved. That's a misunderstanding of the law of God. But even if you are a Christian and you think the law of God is this or that, it can also lead to issues as well. It's a good answer. Sam? What relation does it have to the gospel and Christ's work? And of course, we would say, obviously, Christ obeyed the law on our behalf. It's important to know this. Dick? Direction in life, ordering our lives aright. The rules for the game of life. Richard? Yes. Absolutely. So, again, kind of getting at what Dick was saying the rules. Like, what are the rules and what are not the rules? We, can, we need to make sure we understand the rules. Um, isn't it enough? This is a dumb question, but hey, uh, isn't it enough to know that God calls us to be good people, to be kind, to love, to help, to live moral lives, to live like Jesus? I say this because, I mean, it's not maybe perhaps prominent in our own circles, but Couldn't you say that in in a lot of churches, maybe the de facto is just, you know, be like Jesus? That's really all that we need to worry about is to be like Jesus? Thank you, sir.
Well, the law of God, understanding the law of God, is important in addressing these issues. I want to give you five reasons, briefly as a way of introduction, on why it's important to know, to define the law of God. Uh, The first question, excuse me, the first reason deals with just the, the confessional context. We are in chapter 19 of the confession. Obedience is referenced over 30 times in our confession. For example, chapter 1, paragraph 1. The scriptures are the only rule of obedience. Chapter 8, Christ is our mediator who, through his obedience, etc., etc. Chapter 13, in sanctification, we are to offer evangelical obedience to all the commands of God. So what is obedience? How do we define obedience? Why is that important? And again, I'm going to get to this in just a second, but we live in a day of such personal autonomy, not just in the way that we live, but even, you know, what we believe. That's true for you. It may not be true for me. We live in a day of subjectivism, of individuality, of autonomy, that obedience is not just what you think God wants. Obedience is not just what makes you feel good or how you think people ought to love one another. The law of God defines obedience. And this is what, secondly, so confession gets at this, but just the doctrine of sin and sanctification. If we go to Baptist Catechism, question 18, the question is, what is sin? Sin is any want of conformity unto or transgression of the law of God. Proof text for this. 1 John 3, 4. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. Sin is the breaking of the law of God. That's what sin is. If we are to understand sin, we have to understand the law of God. Romans 5.13, For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. I'm not going to go into what exactly this means. I'd refer you back to our series on covenant theology uh, to, to address what Paul means in this. But the point I'm trying to make is that sin, in order for it to be shown sin, Sin, in order for it to be used against us, to condemn us, must have reference to the law of God. So, we must know the law if we are to know what sin is, and if we are to know what obedience is, and if we are to know how to pursue righteousness. Third reason here. It's a long one. 
But the law, obedience, the relationship between the Old Testament and the New Testament are the source of some of the greatest heresies in this history of the church. Just read the New Testament. Look at church history. This is where the blood has been spilled. Think about the Pharisees. They loved the law of God, didn't they? And misunderstood it. Think about the Judaizers. The, 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 the opponents of the apostles in so many places in the New Testament advocating for Jewish to obedience to Jewish dietary laws, advocating for circumcision, advocating for you must obey the law of Moses to be saved. Paul says, you're cut off from Christ if that's where you want to go. Think of the Jerusalem Council coming together in Acts 15. Think of the Roman Catholic Church as well. Misunderstanding the law of God. Think of legalism and fundamentalism in our day that have torn apart homes and destroyed lives. Misunderstanding the law of God. For example, what if someone says, well, you have to obey the dietary laws in the Old Testament. Don't eat shellfish or pork. You have to obey the sacrificial laws. You have to obey the priestly laws. Right? These, these are laws that are in the Bible. It's, you know, we believe the Bible. Obey the law in the Bible. Well, that's why this, this issue is important. To understand the law. Another reason. Fourth reason. Cultural and apologetic implications. Love is love. You're all familiar with that. But we can all agree that God has called us to love. But what is love? Baby, don't hurt me, right? What is love? Can you define love? I, I had to, Sam. Sorry. <laughs> that was too easy. Is love defined? Is love specific? What if what I say is love is not what you say is love? This is an important issue in our day, in our culture, defining what love is. Um, think about this objection. Well, Jesus never said one word against homosexuality. How can you say that's wrong? Well, if you understand the law only to be what Jesus says, and that alone, and nothing else, well, then this, this objection is right. But is that a right understanding of the law? No, it's not. What about, you know, when Christians cite Leviticus against homosexuality, while the same context also says that wearing garments of two different types of fabric is sin, or men cutting their hair short is sin. Have you heard that one before? This is, you know, a very popular objection to the Bible's teaching on sexuality and morality in our day. You can't cite the Old Testament. That's the Old Testament. 
We know lots of crazy stuff is in the Old Testament. Well, if you misunderstand the law of God, this is a valid objection. Could be. Fifthly and finally here, the law is also central to the redemptive historical storyline of Scripture. This has already been mentioned, but if you want to understand creation, law, a fall, and redemption, you've got to understand the law. If you want to understand creation, sin, the curse, why this world is the way that it is, you have to understand the law. If you want to understand the work uh, accomplished by Jesus Christ applied to us, you have to understand the law. If you want to understand justification and sanctification, you have to understand the law. If you want to understand redemption and consummation and glory and the new creation, you have to understand the law. So, I hope you see that, you know, these reasons and more make this chapter and this subject extremely important. And that's why we're going to spend two weeks on it. And that's why today's largely an uh, introduction. Dick? I'm reading a book by a Reformed Presbyterian. That is very interesting. You may have heard it outside of the title. When Sinners Say I Do. Yeah. And uh, he introduced something to me that I've never heard before. The law of sin. We're talking about the law of God right here. And the law of God is written in our hearts. But the law of sin is also in our nature. Yeah, uh, the law of sin, the law of the flesh, um, in part the law of God exposes that in us. Um, You know, it is um, the outbreak of a disease that's very deep. And that's why when we talk about justification, when we talk about sanctification, we talk about redemption, it's more than just obedience to the law of God. This is a renewal of our being um, in total. Um, We'll definitely get to that. Great point. Um, all right, so general approaches to the law of God. Um, I'm hoping to step on a few toes here. Uh, maybe not. Um, how do people generally approach the law of God? There's more, but I came up with a few. How do people generally approach the law of God? Uh, of course, the one extreme would be a Judaizer or some form of it where all or most of the Old Testament laws are to be obeyed for all time. Um, so this might be an Old Testament, this might be a Jew who rejects the New Testament. This might be a Judaizer who um, accepts allegedly or confess, confesses to, to um, allegiance to Christ, but still holds that Old Testament law is just as valid to us as it was before. This is kind of one extreme. This is, you know, the Galatian heresy. Probably not something that we... Um, Uh, very often uh, are confronted with, but this is one approach to the law of God. Opposite approach would be dispensationalism, New Covenant theology, or really, form of Biblicism, as as I'm calling it here. 
None of the Old Testament law applies unless it's explicitly repeated in the New Testament. So um, this historically is a form of antinomianism, really because the New Testament doesn't give us a law. If you've ever really thought about it, the New Testament does not formally set out, hey, this is the law of God. You've got to have a reason for, for why the New Testament would command us something and why that's binding upon us. Um, so, all of the Old Testament applies on one hand. On the other hand, none of the Old Testament applies. And think about it this way, too. When you say this position, it really doesn't help at all because you can be just as much of a legalist under this position as you can on the other position. If you say, well, the New Testament is the only thing that applies, but you apply that law or interpret that law in a way that undermines justification or sanctification, you're still a legalist. You can be a legalist about a New Testament law just as much as you can be a legalist about the Old Testament law. So these are two ends of the spectrum here. None apply, all apply. Um, of course, there's a spirituality type of view. There really is no law. We're just led by the Spirit. This is another form of antinomianism. Antinomianism means without law. Since there is no law given in the New Testament... If you say that none of the Old Testament applies, you don't have a law. Spirituality, if you say, you know, there is no law in general, we're just led by the Spirit, you don't have a law. That's what antinomianism means. Another form would be love. Love for God and neighbor is really the only law. Uh, Maybe this is WWJD, what would Jesus do? Another kind of form of antinomianism. So often these last two, this led by the Spirit or love is the only law, it becomes situational ethics. It becomes, I really define for myself what law is. You know, sorry. I'm led by the Spirit. I'm just following Jesus. Um, Another form of antinomianism. There's more approaches than this, but uh, I'll just end with the reform approach is what we're going to look at. The law is based upon the nature of God alongside the particular historical covenantal arrangement. I'm going to get into what this means, but law is the nature of God as we see it applied to sin and obedience in Old Covenant and New Covenant. So it's not as simple as saying just Old Testament, or just New Testament, or Spirit, or love. It's deeper than that. It's more theological than that. We learn this based upon how the apostles apply the law to the churches in the New Testament. They apply Old Testament law to New Testament Christians. They do. They say it's binding. And yet they also say so much of the Old Testament law is not binding. What are you doing? How do you do this? That's what we're going to see. All right, so (laughs) that's my intro. You knew that was going to happen.
Um, what we're going to cover, really, if you look at chapter 19, the first par- five paragraphs deal with the theological foundation. Uh, paragraphs 6 and 7 deal with the practical application. The first five deal with the history, the historis salutis, the law in this history of salvation. And then 6 and 7 deal with the law in the ordo salutis, which is the law in relation to personal salvation. Right? You know the difference between historia and ordo salutis. History, historos salutis is like Jesus Christ died on the cross for sinners. It's an act of history. Ordo salutis is when, in relation to, I placed faith in him and was saved. That's personal, right? Historical, personal. That's how it deals with the law here. And we're going to get, we're not going to get very far, but we're going to, this is, you know, this is our outline. This is our approach. We're going to look at the theological and then the practical. We won't get to the practical until next week. Any questions or comments as we begin? <laughs> All right. Well, let's look at what it says. Dealing with the history, dealing with the theological foundation, we see in chapter 19, paragraph 1, God gave to Adam a law of universal obedience written on his heart and a particular precept of not eating the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil by which God bound him and all his posterity to personal, entire, exact, and perpetual obedience, promised life upon the fulfilling and threatened death upon the breach of it, and endued him with the power and ability to keep it. Obviously, this goes back to creation. If you want to understand the law, you've got to start at the very beginning. The confession doesn't say it in these terms, but this is describing the covenant of works. It's our way of summarizing the situation in the garden and its ramifications for history and redemptive history. It walks and quacks like a duck, looks like a duck. It is a duck. It is a covenant, even though the word covenant is not used in Genesis. Although it is used in Hosea to refer to Genesis. The covenant of works. God made a covenant of works with Adam. And part of that covenant of works was a law. In fact, it was centered around a law. The law. Um, A couple of things here, just as a big picture for our purposes. Again, I'll refer you to our series on covenant theology if you want. uh, Or even our chapter on um, chapter 7 through the confession earlier this year if you want to understand the covenant of works. But the big picture of this chapter is the law is not arbitrary. It is not simply part of the post-fallen world, but law is part of the created order. Law is woven into this creation and indispensable from it. Why would we say that law is part of the created order. How could we say this? Mark? Because uh, God, did, God did give laws to Adam and Eve. It wasn't as excessive as the Ten Commandments per se, but it was, um, it was the command to not to eat of every fruit except the knowledge of good and evil. 
So substance of creation in the sense that it's how God set up the world. Is that what you're saying? Yeah. Dalton? Yes, and that's getting at what I what uh, that's getting at what I meant. That's use another hand. Yeah, uh, well, Adam is made in God. The law is uh, you know expression of or character of righteousness, goodness, and so Adam being made in God. In the very act of creating Adam, he creates a, a legal entity. He creates a legal person that will exist. So it's essential to Adam's creation. Excellent. Yeah, both of you, I think, are getting at the right answer, and, and Mark is getting at the application of the right answer. Law, excuse me, the nature of God, man made in the image of God, is essentially why law is part of the created order. And that's getting at the fact that law is not arbitrary. It's not just God saying, I want you to behave this way. It is an expression, manifestation of the very nature of God. Which is also why it's immutable. Which is also why some Old Testament laws still apply to us even if never repeated in the New Testament. Because it transcends history and covenants. It's based upon the nature of God. We are made in His image. Alright. I want to highlight these two phrases from chapter 19, paragraph 1. God gave to Adam a law of universal obedience written on the heart and a particular precept of don't eat the fruit. This is a very important distinction. What is distinction? Distinction. What are the two types or categories of law that we see here? There's a theological term for it, but it doesn't matter if you get the theological term or not. Just tell me what it is, Richard. That would be one way of putting it. What is permanent? What is temporary? Positive and what is moral? Sorry, Cameron. You see, a moral law or a universal law or a perpetual, immutable law, but then you also see a positive law. A distinction between what is moral and what is positive. Richard expressed it as what is permanent and what is temporary. That would be one way of putting it. What do we mean by this? Well, what is the moral law of God? The law of universal obedience that's written on the heart. This is objectively right and wrong. Adam was made in the image of God. 
part of being made in that image is that he instinctively knows the moral law of God, which is based upon the nature of God. This law is essential, an essential part of being human. It doesn't matter what time period or what covenant you live under. Um, here we'll see. We don't have time to turn. Well, let's turn to the first one, Romans 2, 14 and 15. This is important. Romans 2, 14 and 15. Would someone read that loud and clear? Thank you, Sam. Paul is talking about how is God, how is sin sin? How is um, God just to punish sinners who never see or know the law of God? And his point is that don't you see that it's written on the heart? That Gentiles, when they instinctively do law, when they instinctively know that murder is wrong, even though they've never heard of the scriptures, never heard of the law, they manifest that the law is written on their hearts. They manifest that they know the law. And of course, they manifest that God will, on the basis of that knowledge, judge them at the last day. Ephesians 4.24 speaks of how we are being remade in the image of God. Part of our Christian sanctification is that we are being remade in His image. That means that we are being remade according to the law, the universal law, that is part of the image of God and nature of God. So this is moral law. This is, everybody knows it. It's all on the hearts of, it's on the hearts of all people. It's given to us as part of our created makeup in the image of God. And it does not change. It never will change. It won't change. It didn't change in the garden from Israel to now, and it won't ever change in eternity. It's never going to be okay to murder a human being. Ever. Because it's not an arbitrary law. It is based upon the nature of God. He is the life-giving God. To murder is to live contrary to His nature. But then we have this positive law. This is the particular precept of not eating the fruit. A positive law is an external command that's added to the moral. Positive law is defined by the covenantal arrangement, which is why covenant theology is so important. Positive law is only revealed via special revelation, the scriptures, or God speaking in the Old Testament. So to violate the positive law is to sin morally, but only because of the covenantal arrangement, not because of anything intrinsically moral in the command itself. I think I have an example here. Yeah, examples. Uh, No smoking. (laughs) Uh, Wear your seatbelt. 
You know, is it contrary to the nature of God to not wear your seatbelt? No. There's nothing intrinsically moral in positive commands. It's not intrinsically immoral to eat the fruit off of a particular tree. What made it immoral was God saying, don't do this. Moral law, positive law. Another example might be baptism. Baptism is a positive law, which is why we're not Presbyterian, by the way. But baptism is a positive law, which means that at the last day of judgment, is God going to condemn the entire unbelieving Gentile, Gentile world for not being baptized? No. Yes, baptism is an act of our obedience, but if, if somebody hasn't been told, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ to be baptized, there's nothing intrinsically moral in not being baptized. It's a positive law. So we need to understand this if we're going to understand the law of God. And this helps us make sense of Old Testament and New Testament. What is moral and what is positive? Because the moral remains, but the positive changes. Don't eat shellfish. A positive law. There's nothing wrong with eating shellfish. All right. Here with Adam, I've got to hurry up. Uh, the positive law was do not eat. So because of the covenantal arrangement... Adam served as a federal head for the entire human race. He was bound to personal, exact, entire, perpetual obedience. Obedience would bring life. Disobedience brought the curse. Again, we're going back to the covenant works. I'm not going to jump into that now. But think about the fact that the tree is not available to us now. That's not a sin that we can commit or obey. Because it was a positive law. Now, obedience to that covenant is still needed, and that's why the scriptures say there's a second Adam who has come. He has fulfilled the covenant of works where Adam failed. All of the context of Christ's work is placed in that category of fulfilling the covenant that Adam failed to fulfill. But the key is that universal, excuse me, obedience to the universal and particular law is still required for our salvation. Seminary professor used to say, heaven must be earned. It must be earned because man was created in the image of God. Christ had to earn heaven for us by his obedience. That's how important law is. If not, you'll have people just say, it doesn't really matter. Jesus is our Savior. Well, he didn't obey or his obedience wasn't necessary, some might argue. Well, why did he need to come to live? Why wasn't he killed with a sword by Herod as an infant? Because obedience was necessary. Heaven must be earned. We all suffer the consequences of Adam's disobedience, but through Christ we reap the reward of his obedience. And that's why at the end of in Revelation, we are given access to the tree of life. Christ earned that for us because he obeyed everything. Jason? Uh, Galatians 3.21, could you comment on that? Yeah. So here I'll read it. Uh, is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if the law 
Yeah, she's talking about the Mosaic Law in that context. If the law could be given that, if a law in a post-fallen world, uh, in the context of the Mosaic Old Covenant, could give life, he would have given it. If the law itself could give life. Um, I, I don't, I would not apply that to the covenant of works uh, for a variety of different reasons. But I got I to gotta wrap up here. Um, I'll save questions to the end. Let's look at uh, chapter 2, uh, uh, chapter 19, paragraph 2. The same law that was first written in the heart of man continued to be a perfect rule of righteousness after the fall and was delivered by God upon Mount Sinai in Ten Commandments written on two tables, the first four containing our duty toward God, the other six our duty toward man. I want to highlight here the same law continued in the Ten Commandments. What same law is that? The positive or the moral? The moral. The positive was don't eat the tree. The moral continues. Here we see a progression, a forward movement. The, the moral law continues, not the positive. And it must continue. Why must it continue? Come on. Why must it continue? Because it's based upon the image of God, the nature of God. Exactly. And as I said before, murder is evil at all times under every covenant by every being, whether angelic or human, in every universe because taking life out of hate and harm is contrary to the very nature and being of God who is life and gives life to all things. So there's a forward movement. God expands upon the law written on the heart. He gives us more details. He gives more revelation. So in the Ten Commandments, we see that they are very unique. They're written on stone. Stone never passes away. They're written by the very finger of God. This is not what Moses delivered. God himself wrote it. We see the Ten Commandments commanded and condemned both before and after Sinai. Right? You read the Old Testament before the Ten Commandments and, you know, uh, theft and adultery and murder and idolatry was still condemned as wrong and God held people accountable for that. How could He do so if He hadn't told them what was wrong? Well, because He did tell them. It's written on their hearts. All ten are rooted in the nature of God and not the covenantal arrangement as well. Like even the Sabbath commandment. Why do we obey the Sabbath? Because we're told right away that God rested on the seventh day. It's part of creation order. So before Sinai, uh, I already mentioned this, uh, everything was condemned that we see in the ten. Um, although no law was formally revealed, the human heart knows the things that are wrong. God holds them accountable. Even the Sabbath, when the Lord commanded it, He calls them to remember Genesis and what they already knew was true. In fact, that was the great sin of, of Pharaoh. He enslaved them. He didn't give them any rest. You can't hold Pharaoh accountable for a positive law. But you can a moral law. Um, a couple of examples of this. 
And we're going to get into this next week, but I just want to throw them out to you. If you were look at Romans 13, 8 through 10. Oh, no one anything except to love one another. Well, what is love? The one who loves has fulfilled the law for the commandments. Sounds like love is defined by the commandments. He, he cites the seventh commandment. He cites the eighth commandment. He cites... Now, uh, the, the sixth commandment, he cites the tenth commandment, and any other commandment, hello, all ten of them are summed up in you shall love your neighbor as yourself. He holds the New Testament, New Covenant Church accountable to the Ten Commandments and says this defines what love is. This is how you obey the law. Love is further revelation of what it means to obey the moral law of God. Uh, we see the same thing in James 2 as well. Um, he says, uh, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. He cites again the seventh commandment and the sixth commandment. And just the, the phrase that I would highlight, if you fail at one point, you become guilty at all. How can you say that? Only if the law is a unit. If it's indivisible. You can only say you fail at one, you become guilty at all if the law goes together. But he also calls it the law of liberty, which is what we'll get into next week. We stand in it. It's not the law that has changed in the new covenant, ultimately, not the moral law. It's our relationship to it that has changed. And that's key to everything. That's why we're not returning to Sinai in saying the Ten Commandments apply in exactly the same way and exactly the same context because our situation has changed in Christ. 1 Timothy 1, 8-11. This is really big. Um, i got two minutes. But the law is good if one uses it lawfully. Understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient. What do you notice about what I highlighted here. Ungodly, sinners, unholy, profane, fathers and mothers, murderers, sexually immoral, enslavers, liars, perjurers. Yes, but I'm looking for something more specific. Benaya? These are the sins of the Ten Commandments in order. You really don't get the first few unless you read it in Greek because obviously the New Testament writers are working off the Greek translation of the Old Testament. Ungodly, that's the first commandment. Know the gods before me. Sinners is, uh, again, I'm not going to go into the Greek or the argument, but it's a reference to the second commandment. Unholy, blasphemous. Taking the Lord's name in vain, the third commandment. Profane. That's the word that is most often used for disobedience of the Sabbath in the Old Testament. You've profaned my Sabbaths. Fathers and mothers, fifth commandment. Murder, sixth commandment. Sexually immoral, seventh commandment. Adultery. Enslavers, don't steal, eighth commandment. Liars and perjurers is the ninth commandment. The only one that's not mentioned is the tenth. But he says whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. Paul cites the Ten Commandments and says it's good if you know how to use it. 
So in regards to progression, the Ten Commandments give more clarity to what was already written on the heart in creation, but the substance is the same. The New Testament gives even more clarity going beyond the Ten, like in the Sermon on the Mount, which is an exposition of the Ten Commandments, but the substance is the same. I've got to, I've got to end here, unfortunately. So um, we'll pick up with this next week. I'm going to ask you, is the fourth commandment uh, to keep the Sabbath a moral law or a positive law or both? And uh, I'll give you a whole week to think about that, uh, but we will pick up right here next week. Uh, we are just simply out of time this morning. I'm sorry. Um, lots to cover here, but thank you for your questions. If you have questions afterwards, just come up and ask me or save them for next week where we will uh, pick up all of this uh, right here. Um, next week. All right, let's close in prayer.